This weekly podcast inspires you to step outside of your comfort zone. My name is Zakir Muhammad, and I'm your host of the Living Legacy Podcast. I am a cancer survivor, brand cultivator, strategist, author, and world traveler. This Living Legacy Podcast features women of purpose sharing stories of resilience. They are single and married. They are artists and entrepreneurs who run businesses and juggle parenthood. If you are ready to hear interviews about professionalism, entrepreneurship, travel, life, and love, you are in the right place. They will share stories of how they overcame adversity while seeing life through a different lens. Let's get into it. This episode is sponsored by HelloFest, America's most affordable and popular weekly recipe delivery service. You choose delicious recipes and they deliver them straight to your door. With step-by-step instruction, these meals can be made in less than an hour. I love using leftover seasoning and having the option to have fulfilling vegetarian meals. If you portion it just right, you have meals for two days. Get $40 off your first meal box on me. Use code Z-A-A-N-A-Y. So on today's episode of the Living Legacy Podcast, we have Rebecca Scritchfield. She is a well-being coach, registered dietitian, nutritionist, ACSM certified exercise physiologist, and author of the best-selling book, Body Kindness, Transform Your Health from Inside Out and Never Say Diet Again. Rebecca is a freelance writer for the Washington Post, Self Magazine, an advisor to Health Magazine, and Diversified Dietist. Rebecca has influenced millions through her writing, podcast, workshop appearances, and over 100 media outlets. So a lot of the familiar ones, such as NBC 90 News, CNN, Today Show, and O Magazine. She lives in Washington, D.C., and is a super mom to two young girls. So through her weight-inclusive body kind of counseling practice, she helps people to reject diet and body shame and create a better life that works for them, that includes self-care, that includes fitting their needs and not society's needs of what society says. Rebecca was one of the top 10 entrepreneurs in the Washington, D.C. area, and she named 2020 very well top 10 champion of nutrition. So this conversation is going to be all about promoting healthy living that are accessible, inclusive, and actionable. So welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? Oh, thank you for having me. I'm doing well. I am. I just enjoyed a lovely walk in the woods. So I'm feeling very relaxed and very grounded right now. And yeah, I'm just very interested in in having some time to chat with you. I really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. And thank you for being here. It's perfect timing also because at the time of this recording, it is holiday season. And holiday season is known for, especially for people who may have used the word diet all year long or reconsidering their diets now for the new year. So Mm -hmm. I kind of want to get a little bit of a background of view of where did this uh, love and desire for removing the word diet out of people's vocabulary come from? Mm. That's a very interesting question. And it's it's funny because recently I was scrolling through Instagram and I was like, I wonder what my first post even was. <laughs> and and it turns out that, you know, when I first started playing around with Instagram, I was a new mom. So baby pictures, feeding the baby. And it was interesting because as I continued to scroll through, I started to witness my own evolution um, over the last couple of years in more so noticing how I was becoming braver and braver about 
figuring out what I stood for and saying it out in the open because uh, it was a challenge. But as a highlight, I can tell you that uh, like most people, I started my first diet when I was nine years old. And it sounds very young, but you know that is kind of an average age, nine, 10, 80% of 15-year-olds have admitted to not liking their bodies um, or of trying one or more diets. And so this is really indoctrinated in us. It's a cultural ideal around thinness and beauty and even health. So it's, you know, it's one of these things that we think is normal. And I was going through the process. What was interesting in my mind is I really cared about health and well-being, but what I was given was this message of um, dieting. And, and it wasn't all bad. Like I would get positive messages about exercise, but then I would get negative ones too. And I'd get positive messages about food and negative ones too. And so really, you know, the way that this plays out is that I, I dealt with some pretty significant um, body shame and insecurities that were part of growing up and part of what culture said to care about. Luckily, I didn't develop an eating disorder or, um, you know, significant mental health issues. And based on the work that I do now, you know, a lot of people can actually struggle significantly with dieting and body shame and can struggle with mental health. And it's, we can't say one thing definitely leads to the next, but I feel like what we can say that in this day and age, what we offer to people as signs of their worthiness, as signs of their value, it is about being young, being thin, being being white or as light-skinned as you can be. Um, it's about being able-bodied. And it is very harmful because it's not inclusive. It's not diverse. Um, it doesn't support collective well-being. So it doesn't support us looking out for each other's downtime, our community. What does movement look like in community? So, you know, and I would say I'm still, I'm, I'm always a student. So I'm still evolving and learning and growing. Even on this journey of collective well-being, it's something I did write about in, in Body Kindness, um, which I'll be excited to talk, you know, more, more about. But, um, you know, I would say that there was this phase where I hit my rock bottom because I became pretty unwell and the narrow view I had for health and wellness and I wasn't helpful to my clients who were didn't have an eating disorder, but they were dieting, right? I was trying to help them diet and they were struggling. And so ultimately in my book, I thanked my mistakes. And I really think our mistakes and our failures are our best teachers if we're open to learning from them. And, and ultimately that's what it led to. I had to examine um, illness that happened in my family that I actually learned to blame dieting as a root cause, my own 
struggles with physical and mental health that were really upholding diet culture and then watching it play out my in my clients and holding two young kids and just saying I want I want to be part of a different narrative and clearly I have to learn more because I was taught diet culture is the good thing and and that's what it really led to was this full commitment to practicing with myself first doing my own work and then bringing that out there in the world while I fully commit to continue to do my own work. You know, nothing scares me more like an expert who says they have it all and they know it all. And then here, give me your money and I'm just going to give it all to you. I think we're much better people if we can um, own up to our privileges and our advantages, but also present ourselves as I want to learn and be vulnerable with you. I love that. And and you know what? It's also really interesting that you brought that up because it's interesting because I, I too am an author and of course we're both podcasters. And so uh, my book is called Seeing Life Through a Different Lens, a survivor's memoir on overcoming mm-hmm. adversity with resilience. And so it's a book that my mom and I wrote together about surviving cancer, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a chapter in our book where we talk about how my mom intentionally chose the holistic nutrition route for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because after, you know, the, the radiation and the surgery, I just was not eating when I was a child. And so uh, she brought that up and it kind of reminds me of, of the phrase of you are what you eat, right? And mm-hmm. so young age, my mom uh, well, almost didn't even try. She said, um, one day I went to the grocery store and I would just, I picked up a tomato and I ate it like an apple. So I didn't necessarily struggle with fruits and vegetables, but some people do. And mm-hmm. so I think that's a great way to talk about like uh what do you think about that phrase you are what you eat i think it's important to to look at the individuals and the system i grew up in northeast ohio i grew up with some food insecurity and and i will always clarify it with it can always be worse so my parents had jobs they just were hourly workers they had a lot of mouths to feed they worked odd hours so the things that you do in shopping and meal prep, like early on in life, you know, I was making my own food by the time I was 12 years old. And, and I could notice things like being hungry and like not having enough to eat and a lack of access to vegetables and fruits and, and, um, and fresh foods. And we had government food assistance. And I remember being grateful for that to avoid hunger. And then also like deciding to become a dietitian and learning about nutrition and learning about the value and importance of getting a variety of foods and a variety of fruits and vegetables and learning like from a nutrition standpoint, fresh, frozen, and canned all have helpful nutrients that are important to basic life function. And then, of course, you could look at something like fruit and and see how like canned fruit would be canned in syrup, right? So there's heavy syrup and there's light syrup. And, and there's the idea that it, it helps pres- to preserve the fruit quality and also the sweetness of the fruit. Because if you were to can fruit and water, 
the sugars from inside most fruits would seep out and go into the water, which then would make the fruit really bland and somebody not use it, right? And so it's this intersection of, you know, growing up, our nutrition needs were met a baseline of frozen or canned produce. And so I would have not been a good audience member for this message of um, fresh is best, you know, it would have alienated me even more. And so it's interesting because I, I carry this memory and this mindset and, and I often like to write about food shame and how, you know, because diet culture, you know, would say, oh, well, if you can't eat like a holistic nutrition, you know, goop style quality, then if you get cancer, it's your fault, right? And so it's like there's this, we can get this food shame and blame aspect and so what I find very interesting is like, well, let's look at the systemic reasons why we have food deserts or why do we have an access issue? Like, what can we do in our governments and as, as a common humanity be a global citizen and want to fight world hunger and also look at you know, in our neighborhoods and in our communities right now, miles away from us, people are going hungry. What could we do in our neighborhoods and our communities to collect foods and donate them to food banks and let that be good enough and feel good, right? And also say, you know what, we want to help bring more urban gardens, more fresh foods to the communities who need them, because we shouldn't let financial differences be a reason why there's an access barrier. And then it's like, so that's a long-winded answer, but then to layer on, I'm imagining your mom's experience, like I lost my grandma to cancer. I lost years of getting to live with her. And I can feel this sense of gratitude of thank goodness your mom had whatever she needed to nourish herself and to fight cancer. And thank goodness for the way food showed up for her. And thank goodness for what she learned to teach you, to feed you and provide for you, that that is amazing. And how could we look and learn from her experience and grow that to allowing that to be other people's experiences especially with cancer, so that they have the lessons and the access that your mom had? And how do we break down some of those other barriers, cancer or not, because it's the right thing to do for like common humanity, right? And so I say all those, that nuance of the intersecting detail, because I could say, oh, that's diet culture to say, you know, fresh is best. We have to look at the nuance of it, right? And talk more deeply. Like, I would want to advocate for personal choice. If you enjoy the taste of canned peaches, know that those canned peaches have a nourishing quality and you can get peaches year round in the dead of winter in your oatmeal, right? And so it's not a food shame to recommend plain oatmeal with canned peaches. 
as an economic choice because that's a nutritious and an economic choice. And it's not a shame choice, right? But also let's not say that it's automatically diet culture if you talk about access to fresh, wholesome foods. And that's the conversation we're not having, right? And I think it's a conversation that needs to be had because where we are um, right now in the U.S. specifically, is there is a food shortage. There is, uh, we're kind of almost full circle in a way of, of a lot of people are depending on uh, food stamps, government assistance, and even having the lack of access to farmers markets and things of that sort. So what are those strategies for those who, you know, just strive to really eat healthy just to survive, right? Just mm-hmm. to stay alive. So what strategies mm-hmm. would you have for those that, you know, want to just kind of eat, eat more healthy? You know, I would say for anyone wanting to eat healthier, um, that, you know, I always start with self-compassion. That's the basic fundamental, you know, aspect of body kindness. It's all about inner caregiving. And the the simplest form of self-compassion is to be able to say, it's okay. So what I would say to anyone is say, it's okay to want to eat healthier. And it's okay to work within whatever food budget you have. Right. So I I talked a little bit in body kindness about that sort of hierarchy we have over organic versus conventional, like even among the produce and that there could be reasons why we might advocate for organic um, as a food system, sustainability piece. But then when you get into the weeds, it's not as simple as saying all organic. And, you know, there are companies that own both conventional and organic products. And like, you don't even know they're the same thing. So the same company that owns soy milk owns an organic milk also owns just a conventional creamer, you know, and it's, and, and, and so because as a company, it might be something for everybody. It's okay to be maybe say curious about how you want to improve healthy eating patterns. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to spend more money on food, especially if it's money that you really don't have because you also have to make your bills. And so what I would say is to know that I would want to support the policies that in the long term reduce the food access, the food insecurity issues, like you mentioned about access to farmers markets, to be able to use your money and and scale your money so that you can have more of a variety of access to foods that you enjoy. And then to be able to learn simple ways of preparing them, you know, because there's lots of barriers but beyond access. But to truly start it off with this it's okay standpoint, because we can feel this wave of shame, like, oh my gosh, the way I eat is so bad and so wrong, and I am personally to blame 
for my health concern or my body concern, where we might say, I look this way or I have this health problem. Um, I do a lot of work with people with diabetes. And so the belief is this diagnosis shame. I caused my diabetes when that is actually not necessarily scientifically true. It's mostly genetic. There could be other um, social determining factors that have just led to that gene expression and it turned that gene on. But now that you have diabetes or maybe you had a high blood sugar lab and you're trying to reduce that. And if someone's listening and, you know, it's called A1C and they're maybe trying to reduce that. And there's this wave of overwhelm or shame. And what I would say to that is it's okay to have a health concern. It's okay to want to make changes. And it's okay to work within your resources right now, within your budget, within your time, because you are going to learn and grow and heal yourself and create a better life with kindness, with compassion, with baby steps right? And I'm happy to get into some more details or specifics about some of those baby steps, but I really think you can't move forward until you start with kindness and permission to be where you are and to experiment and explore and to work with what you have, right? Because if I jump in and say, we'll do this and do that, you know, we want to, we look for the rules, we want those, but it might not fit. You need to figure out what fits your preferences, your time and your money budget. And you'd be really surprised about how small and meaningful efforts done consistently can make a really big impact. This episode is sponsored by my new book called Seeing Life Through a Different Lens, a survivor's memoir on overcoming adversity with resilience. You can visit ZakiraNayar.com. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you mentioned diabetes because that's huge in my family, high blood mm. pressure is huge in my family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not just my family, but also the minority community. And yes. so that actually, uh, I, I was thinking also about, you know, exercise. Like I, I love dancing. I love music. Um, it's a great way for mental health, you know, self-care, especially in this time. What can you do to just put on a playlist of, you know, your favorite song and just dance, right? But what other um, exercise tips do you have that could kind of correlate to being healthy? It's interesting. My gut instinct was to talk about walking because I had just come back from a walk. But I wanted to just notice that for a second and think about like the inherent ableism in that, right? And so if I may, right, just start from I'm sitting chair, right? So whether you are in a wheelchair or it would be better for your body to do something seated, right? Believe it or not, if you're breathing, you're exercising. So starting with breath work, it's called belly breathing. It actually strengthens your diaphragm right? And so you would take a big, deep inhale and fill, try to fill your belly, right? And then you take this slow exhale. And as you exhale, you can squeeze out like you imagine deflating a balloon and you're squeezing your diaphragm, you're squeezing your abdominal muscles. 
and we say fill your lungs, but actually in belly breathing, right? You're actually using the diaphragm, which is a muscle, you know, and you're using your core that helps support the expansion in the lungs, but you are actually doing a form of strength training from a chair or lying down. So you're getting multiple benefits in in there because you are doing exercise, right? So in body kindness, I talk about um, small, smart, and swift. So what's something very small that you could do that's smart because you know it gives you a benefit and it's swift because you can take immediate action. And I would say that this example of a belly breath fits that. And don't let that inner critic come in and say, oh, that's not hardcore enough for me. Listen, strengthening our core can prevent falls later in life. It supports all the other stability muscles. It's free. You can do it from anywhere. And you can do it right now because you have to breathe. It's just a shift in how you do this breath work. And it's meaningful. And here's that side bonus of it. When you can engage in practicing belly breathing and let that be enough before you're ready to take that walk or maybe do some seated strength training, which I I definitely want to recommend next, it also provides a side benefit of mental health emotion regulation. So it helps you feel that wave of anxiety or that wave of stress. And it feels like a tidal wave. It's going to kill me, right? And look, we're all kind of feeling moments of that right now. And it comes and comes. We think I can't handle it. And it gets us from a 10 out of 10 anxiety more to like a 9 or an 8. Or if, if the feeling was red energy, I might not make it. We get a little calmer or peaceful with even five minutes of belly breathing. And when we do that, we are better off. Mental health and also physical health will be more likely to make positive self-care choices. If you identify as a stress eater or an emotional eater, your practice, belly breathing, will help you do it when you feel stressed or anxiety, right? And so it's not about the shame of of food and just don't eat, you know, just don't eat those donuts, just don't eat that ice cream. Like, sure, in the long run, we want to change our relationship to food and our relationship to soothing with food. That really helps. But if we jump in like a police of do's and don'ts, we all have a rebel and we're all going to break our own rules and we're going to end up where we were before and blame ourselves. And really it was that the thought, that short-sighted thought that if we just eliminated all of it, that we would never eat a donut again. (laughs) And that just doesn't work. But if instead... We practice this belly breathing. We learn some emotion regulation. We learn to strengthen our core. That's going to support posture. That's going to support chair exercises, which you could do for free on YouTube. You know, that's going to support walking and it's baby step. And this is what I would call spiraling up one thing leading to another. Now we're more calm. We're more connected. We're more open. We're happier and we are healthier in a meaningful way right? And when you got all that down and that all sounds great, I say, do what I do and challenge yourself. So I'll go on a walk and I'll say, you know what? I'm going to try to sprint to that tree, you know, and I just do this scary thing to sprint, but it's like maybe 10 feet. And then my heart and lungs are like this. And I'm like, Ooh, got to walk again. And then walk it out. 
and then give yourself another challenge. So you can build from there. So, you know, if what I said sounded too easy or not, you know, take it. I'm all in for challenges, but I want to be inclusive. I want to pick that most extreme sense of, but I'm nowhere, Rebecca. It feels hopeless, Rebecca. What do I do? I would say breathe. Absolutely. I love that. And uh, actually, when you mentioned the breathing exercise, the first thing that I think about is yoga. Like for me, that was Mm. my challenge. And that was my way really of helping to control my breathing and also stay in the moment. Because I think it's also very important to keep in mind that, yes, when we do have those stressful, anxiety-filled moments, that sometimes it's just a matter of taking a step back, taking a breath, a breath of five, 10, 15, 30 seconds at least. Um, And then of course, if you can stretch, stretching the body. I think a lot of people tend to forget about that. Like they do it in the morning when they get out of bed. They do it when they sit for a long time. But stretching too, I feel like also has been very helpful for me. That is amazing. I yoga. I I did a podcast interview with uh, with um with an expert in yoga, and we talked about. Interestingly, we're talking about racism in yoga. Um, and it's definitely there. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that link in case you want to share it with your listeners. I had two important yoga conversations. One with, was with Dr. Sabrina Strings, who wrote Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. And it's a very important read for anyone who cares about health and well-being and who's open to this intersectionality view of maybe judging people by their size isn't helpful. And also you could see how, how it's rooted in white supremacy, which is a very relevant and important conversation that we need to keep having. Um, and But when she was talking about some of her yoga experiences, um, you know, and I was talking about how different my experiences were, um, I was sharing that yoga really saved me twice. And the, the first time was this, was coming around was in my own diet, rock bottom and body image healing, where the teacher would talk about holding yourself with compassion. And I firmly believe that that hearing that over and again in the yoga space and feeling more open and connected, that's part of what really led to what I was writing about and spiraling up in body kindness and also rooting body kindness in inner caregiving and in this practice of kindness and compassion toward yourself was deeply influenced by that experience. And the second time was years later um, and having two young kids and I broke out into all these body rashes and I thought it was this, that, and the other thing turned out to be anxiety um, in my body saying you are, you know, engaging in workaholism. You are avoiding, you know, adjusting to motherhood by throwing yourself in work and doing it all. And, you know, you know, we can really get that juice of um, hustling. It's hard to resist. Both of us being authors and podcasters, I'm sure you can really relate. And, and just learning the boundaries of slowing down again and saying no. And it, it's what I needed to help my rashes go away. I immersed myself again in yoga and meditation. And again, I had the financial privilege to be able to do this retreat. And I'm so grateful for realizing how that brought me back. And I, and honestly, I'm in this wave where I haven't done yoga consistently, um, but I have my mat and I have um, one of my favorite DVDs of the person who I was on a retreat with. 
And I feel this um, commitment of it's going to come back again, Rebecca. And so I encourage so many people, my clients will always tell me yoga is not good enough. It's not hard enough. It's not this or that enough. I think you're listening to a part of yourself that's no pain, no gain. It has to be punishing to be worth it. Or also that doesn't feel that you're worthy of this heart opening, space opening, compassion and gratitude. Let easy be easy when it comes to movement. And trust me, there's a lot of challenging places yoga can go. I think that avoidance of it is more about that you feel like you're so limited in time that you got to make all your movement worth it. And worth it in movement is very harsh, very Jillian Michaels. I'm going to beat you up and make you puke. And that's, that's not who I am. I don't think that's body kindness. It's, you know, I tell people body kindness is what you think it is, but I, I don't think anyone is saying body kindness is making exercise painful. So open it up to yoga and breath. You'd be surprised what you can get out of it. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. I definitely was surprised. And even though it's been years since I've stepped inside of a studio or found that one yoga instructor that I feel gets me, um, I remember the movement. I remember the exercises and it stayed with me for years. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, you did briefly mention your podcast. And so mm-hmm. um, we are kind of coming to the end. And so there's definitely sure. a great part for people to know. Of course, I also put it in the show notes. But for those who are audio learners, what is your podcast? I know it's of the same name as your book, Body Kindness, but yeah. it and where can people listen to it? Sure. So um, wherever you get your favorite podcast, it's there. So it's on um, Apple and iTunes and um, oh, Spotify and Amazon, you know, so if you, wherever you get your podcatcher, just search Body Kindness and you'll find it. Uh, But yeah, there's over 160 episodes and it really depends on what you're interested in. I would tell you that if you're wanting to immerse yourself in, um, in body kindness and you're wanting to follow along with episodes and you feel that you would benefit from hearing somebody else's experience, there's a series called Learn and Grow. And this is with Bernie Salazar, who's a good friend of mine, and he's a higher weight Latinx uh, father of two kids. He is like an open book. You know, it, he has really transformed his mental health and his physical health and his relationship to himself in body kindness. And it's taken four years. What's interesting is he's not his lowest weight because he was actually a contestant in, in a winner, a runner up winner of the biggest loser. And so you hear us have conversations as he was kind of running from this world that made him do punishing things with exercise in his body and how he reframed that and reshaped that. So I would definitely recommend those. And if honestly, if you um, go to my website, bodykindnessbook.com, under my podcast tab, I have categories. So one of those categories might resonate with you and you could dip in that way. But I certainly appreciate you giving it a try. And it is, you know, a lot of conversations with people trying to make sense of the world we're in. And um, I talk to a lot of authors. So we do, we'll talk about their their book. Um, but I really find authors to be interesting people um, in, in what they've come to know and what they've come to share. 
Um, so thank you for asking. Yes. And speaking of sharing, can you also tell us a little bit more about the Body Kindness book? Sure. So that is available in print, ebook, and audiobook. Um, and it's in four languages. And so wherever books are sold, I encourage you to also check out your local library. And it is a book that I'm very, very proud of. Um, people will say that they found it very helpful to read. It was written in a way that felt conversational um, and also kind of beautiful to hold, right? Because this underlying message is, hey, none of these diets are going to work and you might not be able to get the weight, shape, or appearance that you've been told that you wanted. It's kind of like bad news, <laughs> you know? And, but then this word is body kindness. And and so they we talk like, it's like that spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down because you don't, we buy into this belief that, oh, if we just work hard enough that we can get that beautiful shape that we want and then we'll finally be loved and all these magical rewards will come true. But it's beautiful to hold and it helps you with reflections and it helps provide a framework, right, for what would it feel like to treat your body with kindness. And there's three simple principles, love, connect, care, make choices from a place of love, connect to your body and connect to others, right back to that collective well-being I mentioned in the beginning. And then care that you're fully going to commit to care for your well-being no matter what, even when it's hard because you deserve it, you're worthy, and you really are the expert in your values and your goals and what you want out of life and what really matters. And the book takes you there step by step. It's really meaningful for people who feel like they want to heal their relationship with their body and likely with food. They would like to be a little more flexible. They would like to be have a better relationship to movement. And I'm really, really proud of the book and what it is. And, and I'll say that if there's anything in there that you're like, I don't know if I agree with Rebecca. I don't know if this helpful, I'll be the first one to say, take a marker and exit out, rip out the page, burn it, whatever you want to do. I really did my best when I was writing it in 2015 and 2016 to speak to chronic dieters doing Whole30, doing keto, um, doing paleo, and really thinking that those things were helpful. And the other question I really tried to answer is when a person says, but wait a minute, I really care about my health. So what am I supposed to do? If you're saying never diet again, right on the cover, never diet, what am I supposed to do if I care about my health? So I wanted to answer that you don't give up movement, but you reframe it right? And that you don't say, oh, well, body kindness, give me all the donuts or all the ice cream or all the pasta. That's what you want to do after doing Whole30 or doing paleo. But that's not necessarily self-care if you really ask your caregiver. And so it really is about developing flexible and healthy eating patterns that might be like, hey, I got mom's mac and cheese. I want to enjoy a nice big helping and I don't want to put myself in food jail before, during, or after. 
And so there's a lot of nuance. But if you are at a point in your life where we're hearing talking about vegetables feels hard or triggering like maybe an eating disorder recovery because that's what your eating disorder part pushed the vegetables. Then I would say, do what you need to do to care for yourself and just ignore that part, go past it and come back later. And so, and I say that with a level of depth because I do, I have a part that's very burdened by the help everyone don't harm anyone. And so I get so scared at this thought that, ooh, did I say it the wrong way or did I say something wrong? And, and I just, you know, I'll just add a color of a specific experience. There's a part where I'm talking about where you've assessed emotional eating, you know you're not hungry, and to work on different things, like, you know, different distractions. And so one idea was like, pour a cup of hot tea and sip on it in like a soothing, pleasurable way. And I remember I was writing it in the winter, I was making chamomile tea. Like I was doing this very thing and I thought this is pleasant and nice and something hand to mouth. And it really was about like enjoying more pleasure because you've assessed that you were full and you really didn't want to go in the cupboard and grab more food, but you felt this urge to do so. What could you do instead? So it really felt like this gentle, soothing recommendation to me. And I'm sure many, you know, listeners are like, yeah, sounds great, Rebecca. What's the problem? Well, some people just felt that I was trying to say, don't eat candy no matter what, and you're bad if you eat candy. They just kind of read it differently than my intention. That's sort of why I, you know, I say that if there's anything, I really, you know, was struggling with like gum health. And so I, you know, there's, there's one point where I encourage, hey, after dinner, go brush your teeth and like hooray for hygiene. But somebody else might be like, well, that was my diet trick. Well, I didn't, I'm sorry if I, hurt your feelings or just did, did something, gave the wrong advice for you. I just share that because, and you as an author, right? Like what if you said something that was accidentally unhelpful, you didn't mean to do that. It doesn't mean that body kindness isn't for you. One thing I had to wrap around my mind when my book came out is the book is for who it's meant to be for. And if the people who it's not meant to be for get their hands on it at the, at this point mentally, I'm like, you know what? So be it because everybody will pick up what, is meant for them in the book because yeah my book our book my mom and i book is literally or tried to be in chronological order and so of course if there are people who are young adults and are struggling in their young adult age they only want to know how you surviving you know through young adult age if they're not parents they don't want to know how my mom felt right so everyone you know is really different and that's the blessing in disguise about a book you get to connect with so many more people reach so many more people and become the authority in your expertise anyway with this book coming out so yeah 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 you could totally relate right well because if we are helpers right why do we write why do we podcast we want to help people whether it's feel heard or validated oh i wish i had this when i was going through cancer, right? It's like, and you have so much emotion attached to this thing. And we're humans too. We're vulnerable too. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's part of our own sensitivity. And also we have to realize, okay, well, 
if there was something, especially because a book is a moment in time in your life too, it's like, oh, sure, I could see like when I've gotten feedback, like, you know, oh, you know, whether it's a review that I happen to see, right, or just feedback, it's like, oh, and I will, t- thank you for the feedback, let me share my intention, etc. And just like, when you do a book, you don't actually get to kind of update it to be more, I don't know, meet somebody else's need. And to your point, it's a print piece of material. It's not going to be perfect. That's why isn't podcasting great? You get to sort of adapt to the culture and revise and this and that. But I feel like especially so I could see with your book too, because it's something like cancer and there's so, there's so much diet culture, you know, within cancer too, and that personal shame and blame. Um, and that's, and, and you want to help people navigate this. And it's like, I've come to learn that I don't want a person to see me as because I'm an author to see me as I'll never make a mistake and everything is going to serve everybody's needs no better than anyone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I'm definitely glad you mentioned that. And I think I want to ask a couple of fun questions. Sure. Um, before we wrap up, I've started to do this first in this latest season. So mm-hmm. there's two questions. And so I do the fun, fun question first. You ready? Yes. Okay. The first question is, when this is all over, where do you want to travel to first? Oh, gosh. I've thought of a million different places already. So I'll be honest. The first thing that came um, to my mind was um, back to Costa Rica where I did the yoga retreat. I love um, right, exactly. And there were some other places that um, that I didn't get a chance to visit because my visit was so short. I also thought of um, of the Virgin Islands because I've been there with my kids and I've got these beautiful memories in the summer. My grandfather's from there. Oh, <laughs> I've never really? met him. I've never oh. met him. But, you know, he's from there. So yeah. I love the people of the Virgin Islands. You'll never meet nicer, kinder, more community-oriented people ever. And I just, to be able to be there for a sliver of time and to appreciate music and food and the islands, um, oh, it is, it is my medicine. So I know you said pick one, but those are the first two yeah. that came back. I mean, Virgin Islands is kind of depending on which island, kind of a part of the U.S. too. But yeah, mm-hmm, I like that. Mm-hmm, I like yeah. that. Okay. And the second question, probably a little more pondering, have you mm-hmm. pondered a little bit, but what do you want your legacy to be? I would like my legacy to be that I was part of a narrative that did difficult things for the greater good. And that sounds a bit vague, but you know, I, my favorite quote that that I usually bring to mind, I, it's so funny listening because I was like, well, you also love Maya Angelou's, but I love Desmond Tutu. My humanity is bound up in yours for we can only be human together. And, you know, to be honest, um, it should have happened a lot sooner, but since uh, George Floyd's murder, I have been exploring my white identity and my role in white supremacy. And um, the in identifying as a feminist, how my feminism was not intersectional enough and try, it's like, I feel like I'm running out of time and I'm trying to make up for all this time. Also being a mother, 
So, so it's this, it's this thing where I can't go back to the past and fix it, but I can do things big and small. And so that I want to be part of that narrative at this point in time in humanity, right? How can I be part of doing difficult things to change the world for the greater good. And that's going to come in many forms. And I think that there are ways in which I'm privileged and oppressed. And so there's ways in which I can do um, good. And that part of that is going to be me, me continuing to explore my own privileges and also recognize that as a human being, I personally cannot fix this mess. And I need to face that too because I really feel the burnout aspect of it. And so if I'm going to be committed for my life for to social justice in the ways in which it intersects health and race and gender and um, economics, right? I think that I've got to have pauses in signs of strength and pauses in signs of strength. Um, and I just hope to be part of that focus, really and truly. I love that. And I think you're, you're on the right track. You're definitely on the right track. It's, and I also believe that kindness goes a long way, not just with the body, but also with uh, humanity as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it sure does. It sure does. Yeah. And I'm really giving myself permission to evolve. You know, there was, there was a, a time in my life where these like little epiphanies about go ahead and eat the cheesecake. Like I was personally there and I will always hold that space, you know, for, for anyone for being there. You, 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 you be where you are and that's where I'm going to meet you. And as a personal challenge, it's elevating the conversation um, for me that where I think the root of, you know, body kindness does um, get you to think about this idea of collective well-being. It's part four of the book called Where You Belong, you know, but there's so much root work on your personal, like your internal family and then your physical family and your personal experiences that with the limits of a book, it's the last two chapters and it, it could have been so much more, but that would be a whole other book to talk about belonging and collective well-being. There's actually a great book called You Belong um, that I would highly recommend. Um, um, Sabine Celesi, I hope I'm saying her last name right, um, wrote the book. I listened to it. She um, has, um, Bud has a Buddhist take um, on belonging and connection and um, she um, was in, her parents immigrated to the United States. So she's got an interesting personal story and lens to bring to it. So there are other books that picked up where that left off. But I think for me, this idea of holding space for both the personal and collective well-being is where I would like to see conversations around health go. Perfect, perfect. Yes, thank you for, <laughs> for mentioning those resources and the books. We'll definitely leave it all in the show notes. We'll mm -hmm. leave your social media handles in the show notes because I'm sure my listeners are like, who is this woman? I want to follow her. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I want more friends. Yay. I always love more, more friends. friends. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Rebecca. This has been an amazing episode of the Living Legacy Podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Living Legacy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe. 
follow and download so you don't miss the next episode. If you want to learn more, you can visit ZakiraNayar.com. That's Z-A-A-K-I-R-A-H-N-A-Y-Y-A-R.com.